This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm the rabbi's husband, Mark Gerson, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by my friend, Senator Tom Cotton. Senator Cotton grew up on a cattle farm in Arkansas, where he was a center on his basketball team. He then attended Harvard College, where he graduated in only three years, and soon thereafter enrolled at Harvard Law School. Shortly after law school, Senator Cotton enlisted in the U.S. Army as an infantryman and was promoted to first lieutenant. Returning from Iraq, where he served in combat, he was assigned to the oldest active duty infantry unit in the Army, the Old Guard at Fort Myer, Virginia, which protects the Capitol and oversees Arlington National Cemetery. Two years later, he deployed to Afghanistan, where he planned daily counterinsurgency and reconstruction operations. In his service, he was awarded a combat infantry badge, a parachutist badge, an air assault badge, a ranger tab, an Afghanistan campaign medal, and an Iraq campaign medal. Tom was elected to the United States House of Representatives in 2012 and to the United States Senate in 2014. 2018, he authored Sacred Duty, a soldier's tour of Arlington National Cemetery, which became a New York Times bestseller. Senator Cotton, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark. Very good to be on with you. Thank you for hosting me and give my best to the rabbi as well. Absolutely. So, uh, Tom, when I asked you what passage from uh, the Torah or anything in the Bible uh, you want to discuss, you chose Isaiah 6-8. Please tell us uh, what happens in Isaiah 6-8 and around it and why it's so meaningful to you. Mark, Isaiah 6-8 is probably one of the two most cited verses among soldiers, at least the soldiers I knew at the time I served. Um, also, I heard the voice of the Lord's, Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. That was a very common verse to be uh, printed on one's identification tags you know, that you huh. wear on your neck or around your belt loop in combat or uh, printed on the walls of makeshift churches, um, sometimes a little more than huts in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And you can see why it would appeal to young soldiers, because in today's military, every one of them has been a volunteer. They've raised their hand and said that they would join and that they would serve their country and they would be sent downrange if that's what duty called for. And Again, you know, once they're downrange, that uh, they will volunteer for arduous duty, dangerous duty, sometimes life-threatening duty, if that's what the duty demands. So you, you can see why it is so central to young soldiers. Other most common verse I saw on identification tags or makeshift churches downrange was John fifteen thirteen: greater love have no man than this, that he lay down his life for its friend. Which again, you can kind of see why that would be so commonly cited in the military. But uh, it's also something that, you know, chaplains frequently reverted to as well, not just John, I'm sorry, not just Isaiah 6, 8, but the entire sixth chapter of Isaiah or what it tells us about the need to glorify God on high and how we have to seek his salvation or salvation from him and the forgiveness of our sins that only he can purify us but having done so, that we can go out, if he wills it, to be an ambassador for the Lord and to spread his gospel around the world. Yes, because so in Isaiah 6, 5, 
Isaiah makes a very public and seemingly emotional statement of repentance. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And that act of repentance, seemingly an act of cleansing, prepares him to hear and accept the word of God. That's right. And he, I think you know, he uses lips there in a way that you know, lips can often be quite sinful, full of all kinds of lies or deceit, flattery, pride, or what have you, and that perhaps that was representative of his people as well. You know, the structure of Isaiah as a whole is one of people losing their way, but then also uh, being shown a path ahead for the future by Isaiah. And then, you know, it goes into the next verse, the next couple of verses, where one of the angels took a coal from the altar and touched it to Isaiah's lips. Obviously, if you tried to do that in Literally, in real life, it would irreparably scar you, but because of the Holy Spirit, it simply purified Isaiah's lips. And, you know, one thing you frequently heard from chaplains, especially chaplains in some uh, less than pleasant circumstances like basic training or ranger school, is that uh, perhaps the the training you're going through right now up high on Yona Mountain in Georgia or down in the swamps of Florida is your equivalent of having the ember touched to your lips. (laughs) This is the Army's version of purifying you and preparing you for the duty that might lay ahead. Oh, interesting. So this, so this verse was basically used all the time through the military from training to operations. Oh, yeah, I can't. I mean, especially, like I said, especially in the schoolhouse, basic training, officer candidate school, uh, ranger school. I, I can't remember a single of those schools where um, I didn't have a chaplain at least once cite this. Again, it's very common to see on the, the plywood walls of makeshift churches downrange, very common for the chaplains in those sometimes trying circumstances, you know, those schools where you are largely cut off from communication with the outside world, with your family in trying circumstances, that you, especially in a school like Ranger School that you're not sure you're going to complete. It's a reminder that God is still with you and a reminder of why you undertook this great effort. Yeah, the cha- I remember in particular a, a Ranger School chaplain with our class, at least, comparing the hardships of that nine-week course to having a hot cold touch to your lips as the, the Army's way to to purify you, to turn you into a true soldier who'd be ready to go forth and do the work, Lord's work and do the nation's work. Because I, Isaiah, like the volunteers in the U.S. military, he was a volunteer and he was an enthusiastic volunteer. Unlike Moses, who's called by God and finds all kinds of reasons as to why he's not the right person to execute on God's vision, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. In response to the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Isaiah stands up and says, here I am, send me after having purified himself through the act of repentance. That's right. And I think that that 6-8 in particular, the structure of that sentence is very telling. First off, verses 1 through 7 put God in a truly exalted setting. He's upon a throne. uh, He's high above. He's surrounded by angels, angels who are using their wings not just to fly, but to cover their eyes so they don't look upon God's visage, to cover their feet, generally considered the most unclean or impure part of the body uh, in the biblical era. Their voices shake the rafters, so to speak, of the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, so God is in a truly exalted setting in, in this chapter. Yet then he says, whom shall I send? Well, God is all-knowing. Right. So he knows who he should send, and he knows who, in fact, he will send, and who will go for us. And then Isaiah says, and this is very important, and it was very important in some of the, the chaplains I heard in the army describe this verse, here I am, send me. He doesn't say, here I am, I will go. He doesn't say, I am going. He says, send me. So he has an open and willing heart. He is willing to volunteer to go for God. 
However, he does not presume to make that choice himself. He only offers himself up to the Lord. And this is an important lesson that chaplains impressed upon us is there's a lot of times and you may be a, a willing volunteer and your commanding officer is not going to send you. You know, you're not always going to be the main effort. Sometimes you may be the supporting effort. Sometimes you may be the reserve effort. And there's a reason for that. And you should always do your duty and do what's asked of you. Just like this passage is showing that you should do what God wants you to do. You can have a willing heart. You can have a burning desire. But in the end, you need to turn yourself over to God and not begrudge his choices, not resist his choices, not try to seize what you want. So you, Moses was one good example. An uh, example I've used in the past is it's kind of like the end of the field of dreams. You know, after Kevin Costner has spent right. all this time plowing under his cornfields, building a baseball park, going to pick up, maybe kidnap James Earl Jones and <laughs> Moonlight Graham in Boston and Minnesota. You know, the old Black Sox come back and play and they bring their friends back. And then finally, they're going to take both Moonlight Graham and James Earl Jones' character into the corn and Kevin Costner is following them. And Ray Liotta, who plays Shoeless Joe, turns around and says, you can't come, you're not invited. And he gets kind of huffy and angry that he did all this work. He put his family's fortune at risk. He put himself at risk by going to get these others that he doesn't get to go into the cornfields like the others do. But he soon realized that there's a reason for that. And what it is is that it was his father as a young man, as a ball player, had come to play that night as well. So he'd have a final game of catch with his father. And that's how the movie ends is with, with Kevin Costner having a game of catch with his dad, which he had refused to do as a young hippie. And he realizes that, that this was what God willed from the beginning, was trying to close the circle with his deceased father. That's kind of the example that I, I heard one chaplain particularly describe overseas, that you, do, you want to do God's work and you want to give yourself up to God willingly, you want to volunteer when you're called, but he may not have you answer that call. Right. And I think uh, what we see here is really the, a beautiful expression of God's de desire for his work on earth to be executed through a partnership where God comes and says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It's Isaiah could have said nothing. He could have said, not me. He could have argued. He could have, there are lots of different choices he had. Instead, he enthusiastically says, here, send me, establishing that you have to have the divine will for partner. Then you have to have the person saying, I want to be your partner. And it's with that, it's through that partnership of man and God that God's work gets done on the earth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and then continuing in the passage, it gets very interesting because uh, God tells Isaiah, go tell the people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but not perceiving, really making a very important distinction made throughout the Bible between when you know something and when you really know something. So knowledge in the Bible is never just cognitive. It's like Adam knew Eve. Well, he, he knew of her existence and what she meant to him. And we, we see this all the time where with the Pharaoh, and there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. The Pharaoh had heard of Joseph, but he didn't internalize what Joseph meant for the Egypt of his day and for the relationship with the Jewish people. And here it seems to be that's what God and Isaiah are saying as well, is that there's a difference between seeing and perceiving and hearing and understanding. You can see and not perceive, and you can hear and not understand. I, I think that's exactly right. In, in, in all my times of having chaplains minister on this verse, I've never failed to hear them minister about this particular verse and say it reminds them of some of the congregations to which they've ministered in the past. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they've stood in the altar for a long time on Sunday mornings, yet they're pretty confident that their flock 
hears but does not understand and sees but does not perceive. And it's exactly as you say, Mark, there's a difference between knowing of something and truly knowing it, of perceiving it and truly understanding it. I think one of the points that God is making here to Isaiah is that he will tell the people, the people will not listen, and it will just further impress upon him and eventually upon them, upon their need to repent and to follow God's way, that they had heard the word, yet they had not followed the word. Yeah, and and a persistent question throughout the Torah is about the relationship of man with God, is that God speaks, there's no ambiguity in the Torah that God speaks directly to the people he's speaking with, yet still there's sometimes this disconnect between hearing what you know is God, seeing what you know is God, and doing what you know God wants. Yeah, it's a it's a very common theme, and you know it's obviously a common part of our lives as well of knowing what you should do, not being able to do it. You know, look, I mean, that's um, one of the consistent themes uh, of the entire Bible is the fallen nature of man. It's easy to understand in kind of the intellectual sense the Ten Commandments. In many cases, it's proven hard for mankind to follow them. Right. Right. Is that yes? Uh, doing the right thing is 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 often not a matter of knowing what the right thing is to do but executing. One of my one of my drill sergeant's favorite terms, you know, once we got back from chapel on Sunday and we were back in uh, drill sergeant land was to do the hard right over the easy wrong. And you'd have a lot of opportunities to do that in the army. What he left unsaid and, you know, what uh, obviously is true, you have a lot of opportunities in life as well to do the easy wrong frequently when no one is looking as opposed to the hard right. Right. Did uh, these ideas or this passage, um, was it prominent in your service in the old guard? I can't recall if I heard on the Fort Myer Chapel, the chaplains preach this particular verse. But again, you know, the Old Guard is one of those rare organizations in our army that is an all-volunteer unit. And normally, you know, you get out of basic training or you get out of officer training and you just go where the army sends you. Maybe it sends you to the 101st Airborne. Maybe it sends you to the 1st Cavalry. You don't have a lot of say. But the Old Guard, like the Ranger Regiment, like the Special Forces is an application-only unit, and therefore it is filled with not only with soldiers who volunteered for the military and volunteered for the infantry, but volunteered for what can be, at times, a challenging duty, performing military honor funerals for our fallen heroes and their family members. So it does embody the meaning of this passage in that way. Senator, just um, uh, one final question, which is unrelated to Isaiah, but it derives from Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir where he said that um, he had just run into a man uh, with whom he had served in the war. And he said, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to the man, um, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, that everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So uh, Tom, in your years of serving in the military and then serving in Congress and now the Senate, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, I, I, I've learned that we are certainly all fallen, that the biblical wisdom on that is right, and that we cannot be perfected. Despite the humanist project over the last 300 years or so, um, there is no salvation on earth. There is no salvation in politics. It doesn't mean that we can't strive to um, make the world a better place, to live up to God's injunctions, to care for our neighbors um, as we would care for ourselves. Um, but in the end, we're fallen creatures, and there is no perfectibility to human nature. And any efforts to do so typically leads to the most monstrous kinds of tyrannies and crimes. So I'd say that's one. Two, on the bright side, this is more a lesson from politics, 
but also a lesson to a degree from the military as well is that most people, most of the time, try to do the right thing. They don't always do the right thing. Sometimes they know what it is and sometimes they fail to do it. But most people, most of the time, try to do the right thing. Look, I I serve with some people in the Congress who I I just can't imagine how they hold a single view that they do. You know, we talk with some of these liberal Democrats in a constructive, good-natured way, and you still can't get around uh, how they see the world they do. But more often than not, they represent their voters pretty well. I'm willing to concede that Nancy Pelosi represents the voters in San Francisco pretty well. She probably wouldn't do so in Arkansas, but you know, I might not represent the uh, majority of voters in San Francisco as well. That doesn't mean, though, that you've got 535 elected members of Congress who are just in the Congress for ambition or calculating or hedging and trimming on every vote, as opposed to trying to do what they think is the right thing, their worldview and by the people that they serve. So a little realism and a little optimism. Uh, we're fallen creatures and then we're not perfectible. But on the other hand, most people try to do the right thing most of the time. Does it make it easier to um, work with somebody or to respect them intellectually, even when you may disagree with them on everything? If you agree, as you just said, that they're coming from a good place, that they're trying to do the right thing by their lights, even if your lights are very different? Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, to, to be able to work with someone that you know is just a, a principled liberal, or in their case with me, a principled conservative, where you're seldom going to agree, but come by the views honestly or not doing it for political calculation, or maybe I should say only for political calculation, and who's going to deal with you honestly and in good faith, um, it makes it much easier to find common ground, even if that common ground is rare and pretty slender. But I think about some of the Democrats with whom I've worked, sometimes behind the scenes, um, to accomplish shared goals, especially shared goals whenever we have overlapping interests for our people back home, it's a lot easier uh, if there are men and women of character um, who hold come by their views honestly. And uh, do people study the Bible together in the Congress and the Senate? Yes. Uh, so there is a weekly um, breakfast where we typically, you know, have a breakfast, and the chaplain, Chaplain Barry Black, a great chaplain, will uh, lead us in song, and then one member will share a story or a verse or, or what have you. And then there's also smaller Bible study groups. Those are more fluid that kind of ebb and flow based on, you know, who's in the Congress in that two-year term or, you know, what schedules are. But uh, there's definitely shared Bible study and shared prayer and reflection. All of which is bipartisan, of course. I think uh, all the ones I know of are bipartisan, yes. That's great. Well, hopefully the uh, eternal wisdom and um, ever-inspiring words of the Bible can... Uh, can bring us to uh, an ever better place, politically and otherwise. From your lips, which are cleansed, to God's <laughs> ears. That's right. Well, Senator, thank you for such an interesting conversation and uh, about Isaiah 6, 8, which is a passage that I had not, I didn't know anything about before you suggested it. And so thank you for speaking about it with us today. And thank you for uh, inspiring me to learn what's such an important passage, not only in the Bible, but for the American military. Well, thanks very much, Mark. I'll confess that uh, I didn't really... It wasn't front of mind for me until I joined the Army either. So uh, I hope that uh, all your listeners will benefit from this conversation because I certainly benefited from hearing about it from my fellow soldiers and our chaplains. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Senator. You are the God of the break. If you believe there's a breakthrough in the house tonight, clap your hands.